We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 28th. It's show number 16 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola about where rate stats actually stabilize, how to use and not use the new stats coming out of ballparks, about managing pitcher rankings, and about scaling fab bids. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Michael Conforto, bullpen situations in St. Louis and Cincinnati, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Felix Hernandez, Mitch Haniger, Rajai Davis, the Angels' bullpen, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on the Blue Jays outfielder Anthony Alford. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at whether it's almost Moncada time in Chicago. In our Frequent Flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Los Angeles second baseman Willie Calhoun and Colorado reliever Matt Carasiti. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at Clayton Kershaw, Chris Archer and other matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about some April news that caught my eye. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The first month is in the books. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Let's start uh, in Arizona. They got some bad news about Shelby Miller. Uh, last year, of course, it was nothing but bad news with Shelby Miller, but uh, it looks like now he's out for the year. He's got some issues with an elbow ligament. Uh, Nick, first of all, what everybody wants to know is the Tommy John situation. Well, you know, right now, Shelby Miller is weighing, weighing his options. He has a torn UCL, so the question is, do they do Tommy John surgery, which would keep him out for a long time? Does he try the uh, stem cell treatment that uh, Garrett Richards opted for when he had a similar problem last year? Um, so right now, they're just trying to make a decision on what they do with Shelby Miller. But what's very certain is that Shelby Miller is going to miss most of the rest of this season, if not the entire season. Now, this has some ramifications for the Arizona rotation, especially, I think, for Archie Bradley. He had been doing pretty well in the Arizona bullpen, and there were even rumblings that he might be considered as a closer. But uh, does it now look like he might be needed to take Miller's place in the rotation? What's going to go on with that Arizona rotation? Well, things are really in a state of flux right now. Archie Bradley's been pitching extremely well in the bullpen, uh, 17 strikeouts, three walks at 14 innings. So pitching very, very well in the bullpen, and looked like that might be a good home for him. Uh, but he may have to shift back to the rotation. But they do have other options. Uh, Zach Godley pitched the uh, w- w- pitched the the first game uh, in uh, Miller's uh, as Miller's replacement on April the twenty sixth, and did, did well. Uh, five innings pitched, two earned runs, six strikeouts. Returned right back to Triple A Reno after the game, uh, but could come back back to Arizona uh, almost immediately. They'll also be looking at Braden Shipley as a possibility. Braden Shipley is struggling in his four starts at Reno with a 5.32 ERA. 
they may be looking at uh, at top prospect Anthony Banda, but uh, he's also struggling with a 5.49 ERA at, in four AAA starts, but a 9.2 DOM looks uh, very good there. Rob Carroll covered the whole thing uh, on Friday morning. Uh, and so a lot of options right now, certainly a lot of things to keep your eye on in that Arizona rotation, a lot of moving parts, uh, but certainly some, some good arms there and a possibility of uh, someone coming in and making some hay if they, if they pick the right person, but also a possibility of a lot of disaster if you pick, they pick the wrong person. Yes, and I would bet on the, more of the latter. It sounds like there's a, a lot of bad risks going on in that rotation. I don't know if I'd be that curious to, to get involved. Of course, it all depends on your team. I mean, if you got to catch some lightning in a bottle, you could do worse, I suppose. And Nick, one of the ongoing soap operas in Major League Baseball could, could be called the Conforto Chronicles with Mets outfielder Michael Conforto's trials and tribulations in New York. He's on the roster. He's off the roster. He's batting cleanup. He's batting eighth. Now, BaseballHQ.com playing time tomorrow analyst Greg Pryor says Michael Conforto could be due for a bigger role in the Big Apple. Take a look at what Michael Conforto is doing, and I'm seeing that in some of my leagues. He's moving around. He's been moved from one team to another for uh, a highly, in a very uh, high-profile trade. You remember Michael Conforto last year played very, very well. He looked like he was going to break out at the beginning of the season and then went into the tank. And uh, actually was pretty good in spring training this year. So, but does not have a spot with Jay Bruce in the outfield. But now with all the problems in uh, in New York with uh, Lucas Duda on the DL, uh, with a hamstring injury to Ioannis uh, Espedes, uh, there's room for Michael Conforto to play. And Michael Conforto has been making some hay. Uh, over the past week, uh, Michael Conforto is 5 for 18 with two homers, two RBIs. Uh, not bad at all. And uh, overall, four homers and a 302 batting average in his first 43 at-bats. So, Mike Conforto is beginning to show the promise that we all know he has, still just 24 years old, even after all the drama from a year ago. Uh, and they may find ways of keeping Mike Conforto in the lineup if he keeps hitting. They certainly would need to do that if he can keep getting good wood on the ball. And he's been batting leadoff for, for a lot of that time as well and done pretty well as a leadoff hitter. He's a pretty good hitter, but he's uh, always seemed to be on the bad side of uh, manager Terry Collins' opinion, uh, finds his way into the doghouse repeatedly. So we have uh, um, a couple of injuries. Lucas Dudo, you mentioned Yuena Cespedes. Uh, what happens when the Mets, if they do, finally get back to full strength on their roster? How does that affect Michael Conforto, do you think? You know, it's... Um Curtis Granderson has been playing very, very poorly. Uh, what could happen very easily is that Conforto could take over Curtis Granderson's spot. Uh, Granderson hitting below the Mendoza line at this point, and unless he picks it up, he could be the, uh, the real playing time loser in this situation. All the way to the other coast in San Francisco, I suppose they're probably trying to get a ballot initiative for a statewide ban on dirt bikes. But in the meantime, they're also having some troubles on the offense. Namely, they don't have an offense. Uh, baseball HQ analyst Rob Carroll says in Playing Time today that help is at hand in the form of a new third baseman, Christian Arroyo. So, Nick, who's Christian Arroyo and how can he help the Giants and yeah, fantasy Christian teams? Arroyo, it looks like uh, he started off very, very well. Uh, uh, San Francisco's top position prospect, played all over the diamond, um, made his major league debut on Monday, April 24th, uh, and now, right now, the third base job is certainly his to lose in, uh, in San Francisco. And he has not started off badly at all. I mean, if you're looking for some, for some help, there's a good possibility with Christian DeRoyo might be able to provide some help. Uh, four hits in his first 16 at bats, one home run, three RBIs, so certainly not hitting poorly at this point, although, 
Uh, a little uh, some uh, some contact issues so far, 69% contact rate. So he's getting some swing and miss right now, and that could get even worse as the pitchers begin to figure out where the holes are in his swing. Uh, and a lot of ground balls so far, over a 50% ground ball rate. So you know, uh, Christian Arroyo is going to get a good shot. Looks like he's got uh, he's got some power, uh, and so uh, someone you might want to consider if you need that. On the other hand, keep in mind that this is a guy with a. Uh, uh, who could go into the tank fairly quickly once pictures figure out exactly who he is and where the holes in his swing are. Yeah, and that's always the challenge, isn't it, for a, for a new young prospect to come up. He can sometimes surprise everybody because they don't know what he is, but as soon as they figure him out and word gets around, well, of course, then uh, sometimes the shoe is on the other foot. Now, uh, this was all covered, uh, Christian Arroyo was covered in uh, BaseballHQ.com scouting area in the Daily Call-Ups report. He's an 8C rating, and that's a um, an 8 as a solid regular. A C is the likelihood uh, of his attaining that, and that looks pretty good. So he could even be better, and they say he's a yeah, pretty he, decent he hitter. He appears to be a pretty decent hitter. You know, I always take a good look at those ratings, uh, and, and a guy who's got an eight is someone to uh, to really really keep your eye on, especially if they look like they've got a solid spot in the lineup. And Christian Arroyo has that. So I think if I had a, a a hole at third base, I would be taking a very long look at Christian Arroyo right about now. One uh, caveat, though, Nick, uh, no speed there to speak of. So if you're looking for speed from there, you might want to be thinking about looking elsewhere. But he's got good bat control, hits the ball a lot. Uh, he's kind of gap-to-gap type guy. Uh, he, he, he arrives at the hot corner, so that means uh, Eduardo Nunez has to move, which means somebody else has to move, and so on and so on. What are all the playing time ramifications here? You know, there's a, there's a lot of potential movement going on here as you look at it. The um, uh, It looks like there could be some playing time loss for... Uh, uh, for Gorkas Hernandez, certainly for uh, Denard Spann, for Aaron Hill, uh, as they're moving people around. So uh, the, the Giants have been struggling offensively. They're going to try some different things. They're going to move some guys around. Um, they uh, they called up Drew Stubbs from uh, AAA Sacramento as well. So uh, you're going to see some new look in that Giants lineup as they try to, to try to uh, generate some offense. So. It's a, it's a situation to keep your eye on. If somebody gets hot at the right time, they could find themselves with some playing time over an extended period. We should point out Aaron Hill is now on the disabled list. He's got a forearm injury. Chris Marrero has been shoved all the way off the 40-man roster. Not good news for him as well. So there's uh, definitely some whole lot of shaking going on in San Francisco. And sometimes, Nick, uh, when there's a lot of roster movement, that's when uh, the canny fantasy owner needs to be uh, real sharp and seeing which guys are landing where and whether there's some opportunities yeah absolutely i mean when there's that much roster movement going on and that many much shifting going on uh it's it's a good time to look for opportunity before your league mates realize exactly what's happened our baseballhq.com bullpens analyst doug dennis had an interesting column this week looking at a couple of potentially volatile situations and uh, let's start in doug's hometown of cincinnati razel iglesias is three for three in save situations but there could be some changes coming according to doug what's the shakeup? well you know what they like about razel iglesias is the guy can pitch more than one inning at a time so you can bring razel iglesias in in the eighth inning you can get two innings for you instead of just one uh and still still shut things down pretty well the problem, of course, is after doing that, he may not be available the next night. So uh, what it looks like is some real opportunity in that bullpen for Michael Lorenzen and for Drew Storen to get some save chances because it, uh, uh, if Iglesias is simply not available and they seem to like him in that sort of multi-inning uh, end-of-the-game role, then somebody else has got to step up. And uh, certainly at this point, Lorenzen and Storen have been pitching extremely well. There are going to be some save opportunities for them there. 
So uh, something to watch. Uh, it may be a chance where you could pick up a Lorenzen or a Storin and, and stick them on at the end of your roster and pick up some saves as well as a pretty good uh, ERA and whip out of either guy. It looks like the Reds are planning on getting 80, maybe 85 innings apiece out of Iglesias and Lorenzen, which is actually pretty good news for their owners because it's, what, 20, maybe 30% more innings than a typical closer reliever type endgame guy would get. And that means more strikeouts, maybe a few more vulture wins. And if they're providing good ratios, you like to have more innings of good ratios. So what's the downside here besides Iglesias loses save opportunities? Well, you know, there was only the real, the real, only real downside here is that uh, if you're picking up a guy that you want to to get 30 saves or 35 saves, not going to happen likely in this bullpen. Uh, but on the other hand, as you said, a, a lot of innings and uh, some really good pitchers in that in that bullpen. So, and especially with the rotation not being perhaps as strong as uh, as we'd like it to be, there are going to be chances for these guys to pitch uh, to get some innings at the end of the ball game. So. Um, Certainly a place, I think, that a canny owner could uh, could make the right choices and come out pretty well in that bullpen. You know, when I was uh, talking with uh, Ryan Bloomfield last week doing the National League coverage, uh, he said he's really impressed with what Brian Price is doing in Cincinnati. He seems to be very willing to pretty much ignore this whole closer label and put the best pitcher out there for the longest time in, in games to increase the likelihood of actually winning rather than saying you're number seventh inning, you're eighth inning, you're ninth inning. It's, okay, you're ready to go. Get in there and halfway through the seventh and maybe pitch two innings and a third or something like that and just close the the entire thing down seems to me like a real intelligent approach and certainly Cincinnati's not going to be involved in too many winning games which it, it's not like he's uh, really rolling the dice on a pennant opportunity yeah you know it's certainly I agree I think this could be a very intelligent approach uh, you know especially if you've got uh, got several guys who can do the job and you've got a guy doing the job on on any particular night uh, it may be worth keeping them in the ball game instead of uh, bringing them bringing somebody else in who might have a bad night uh, and therefore tip things the wrong direction. So uh, that approach, we, we, we may actually see that approach being used in, in more situations uh, than just Cincinnati as the, uh, as the season rolls along. And as people start looking at it and realizing, holy cow, you know, we're getting, instead of getting 65 innings apiece from Iglesias and from Lorenzen, we're going to get 85 innings, which means that many fewer innings for some of the lesser pitchers in our bullpen. And that can only help the overall situation. And sooner or later, maybe somebody will realize, holy cow, if we could get, you know, five 100-inning guys instead of nine 55-60 inning guys, maybe we could add a batter back to our bench, which is something that is, seems to be going in the opposite direction right now. Uh, now, Nick, before we leave this situation, Cody Reed and Robert Stevenson are supposed to be starters, but they've been finding their way into a kind of a flex role as well. Right, They're very definitely. Uh, Cody Reed and Robert Stevenson have been have been working out of the bullpen, or uh, and so keep an eye on those two guys. You know, this 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 the shift to the bullpen of some of these guys who are starters may allow them to use their primary pitch a lot more uh, and more effectively without batters getting a second look at it. So both of those guys could find a, a, a good role in the bullpen uh, if they're not needed uh, all the time in the rotation. Yeah, and I'm thinking also there could be some middle relief opportunities or long men, you know, going in in the third, say, after a rough start by one of the uh, Cincinnati weak starters, and heaven knows there's enough of those. There might be some real opportunities there as well. Moving on to St. Louis, uh, Doug Dennis reports that closer Seung Hwan Oh has had a rough first few weeks, and that might open the door for a name from the recent past in St. Louis. 
It may indeed. Take a look at Trevor Rosenthal, because Rosenthal is pitching very, very well to start the season. Uh, just a scant, a scant at the time Doug wrote this, a scant 3.3 innings pitch, but uh, no one runs allowed, a 1.2 whip, uh, striking out 18 guys per nine innings. You know, you can't, can't do a lot better than that. And so Trevor Rosenthal right now is looking very good. And if O continues to struggle, uh, certainly because he had change in the uh, closer situation in St. Louis. In fact, I believe Trevor Rosenthal got the save uh, on Thursday night. Uh, so that's something to watch. And, and I don't know that the, sh- the shift has necessarily taken place yet, but it could happen very soon. A lot of other guys struggling in that St. Louis bullpen. Brett Cecil has not looked good. Kevin Segrist has not looked particularly good either. It's it's a pretty rough situation in St. Louis. Maybe they're going to have to figure out some, some juggling act, uh, much like they're doing in Cincinnati. Yeah, they might indeed. I mean, right now, beyond beyond uh, Trevor Rosenthal, and, and I wouldn't even put O in the uh, positive category, uh, they need a lot of help in that bullpen at the moment. Certainly someone needs to step up and Trevor Rosenthal at the moment is doing it. And finally, Nick, let's stay in St. Louis, where Mike Leak, the starting pitcher, formerly of Cincinnati, has looked like the second coming of Bob Gibson out there at Bush Stadium. Four starts, four quality starts, three wins. He's got an ERA comfortably under 1.5 and a whip comfortably under 1. He's really getting the job done. And in the speculator column at BaseballHQ.com, Brent Hershey asks, could Mike Leak be this year's Kyle Hendricks? I'll bite Nick. Can he? Yeah, he could. Uh, you know, I mean, you take a look at, at what you've got going on, and Mike Leak uh, may be the closest guy we've got, a uh, uh, a sinker-heavy guy that, that gets a lot of ground balls and uh, a, a, not a bad cop to uh, to Kyle Hendricks from a year ago. Uh, uh, he's got a good secondary pitch as a cutter, uh, and through four starts, he's off to the best start of his career. His uh, his dominance is good. His swinging strike rate, uh, a swinging strike rate surge in the second half last year, and those th- that's held on a bit. Uh, at its standing location at this point, just four walks and 27 innings pitched. So, uh, you know, you're going to see Mike Leak's uh, ERA go up from 1.32. It's not going to stay there all year. But uh, Brent says he could be headed for a breakout season. So if Mike Leak's sitting around in your league, he may be a guy to uh, to grab hold of and see what happens. Yeah, one of those situations where a lot of owners are going to look at Mike Leak's fast start and they'll say, yeah, it's just Mike Leak. It's just four starts. Sooner or later, the, the uh, car's going to drive off the road. But uh, so far, the skills are there to support the outcome. Yeah, they are indeed. You know, that's one of the important things to look at and one of the real advantages that uh, the Baseball HQ can give an owner at this point in the season. I mean, you look at Mike Leak right now and those four starts, BPV of 119, that gets your attention. Uh, certainly the projections are for the rest of the season are not, not that good because those are based upon Mike Leak's past. But when you look at a, see a BPV that high over four starts, you begin to say, maybe this is real. And so I spend a lot of time myself early on with guys who are, are, are showing something they haven't shown before, looking at those secondary stats, looking at the overall BPV to see whether the, the skills are backing up what's going on in the field. And that's a good place, I think. To, for you to make some decisions. All right, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Great advice as always, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's take it on down to the American League. BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Back to the show. Jock, how's it going? 
Hi, PD. Pretty good. What's up with you? Oh, well, you know, I've had a little bit of a shaky week with my players, lots of injuries. Uh, I lost Drew Smiley from Seattle early on in the year, of course, right before the opening day. And the Mariners have had an even worse week than I had. Uh, first of all, they waived Leonis Martin, a bit of a surprise, their center fielder. He cleared waivers and got assigned to Tacoma in the in AAA. He's off the 40-man roster. Then right after that, Mitch Hanniger went down with a strained oblique. That could be a month, six weeks, eight weeks. Those obliques are tough injuries. So right away, you have two of Seattle's three starting outfielders gone. You and Rod Trusdell covered this in playing time today and playing time tomorrow. What are Seattle Mariners going to do about this situation? Well, first let's touch on Martin, who I was a little skeptical of going into the season anyway. And I think you and I have agreed upon uh, about him over the last year or two he can't hit he had a lucky first half he hit some home runs last year uh in the first half and fooled some people uh he was clearly loading up his only carrying tools are speed and defense and it showed early on he was striking out a lot uh was hitting well below 200 and seattle has multiple players who can handle center field or at least they did until hanniger went down so jared washburn or i'm sorry jared washburn jared dyson is going to get center field uh in, in Seattle for the time being. Hanniger's loss is going to be a little more difficult to absorb since he was Seattle's best offensive player in the early going. Boy, was he ever. So you have two outfield positions open, and uh, obviously Hanniger's not going to fill one of them. They're not going to recall Martin, you wouldn't think. So who fills the open spots? Well, early on, Guillermo Heredia has been very hot. This is a guy who early in the season I was somewhat lukewarm about. I'm, I'm a little more optimistic about him as the more I see him play. Uh, he's a right-handed hitter with a, a very solid plate approach, and he plays good defense. He has questionable power. Now, I've seen him hit two home runs, and he, he was really swinging for the fences on them, but uh, he seems to know he needs to do a little bit of that maybe to survive uh, some selling out. Uh, his power isn't really reflective reflected in our metrics uh, but this is a guy who who has enough skills that at least he can help you in the short run and uh, he's hitting over 300 so um, it, it's a long season and I actually have him rostered on uh, in uh, in one of my leagues now now Ben Gamble was uh, recalled to Phil Hanniger's spot I'm a little less optimistic with him at despite his handedness. He's really more of a number four, number five type. He's gotten the right field start since Hanniger has got sent down, uh, and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah, one other thing to like about Guillermo Heredia is that he's full value for that 300 batting average. is expected batting average around 280, so it's with certainly within the margin of error. I guess the question is, can he maintain it? And that's a little more uh, dubious a proposition, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And uh, he, he's a Cuban import. We haven't seen a lot of him. His plate approach is very, very good. He put up uh, an 80% plus contact rate last year. He walked a lot last year. He hasn't walked much so far this year, but I think he's uh, he's trying to jump on some pitches early. So we'll see how this plays out. At the same time, it looks like uh, Seattle's going to make some playing time adjustments that are going to cost Danny Valencia quite a bit. They've recalled Daniel Vogelbosch uh, from the AAA level. He's going to pick up a ton of at-bats in a platoon, and meanwhile, uh, Valencia looks like he starts sliding around as a utility player at the corner infield spots, maybe a bit of a, a corner outfield as well. Yeah, Valencia has been pretty bad this year. Uh, obviously, he's not what uh, Seattle had hoped for. I think he's hitting below 200 right now. Um, and uh, Vogelbach was actually called up when Leonis Martin got uh, designated. Uh, and obviously, Seattle wants to see if they could, at the time, they wanted to see if they could uh, get a little more pop out of that first base spot. Uh, 
Vogelbach so far has been less than scintillating. I think he's two for nine and they're spotting him. So uh, first base is another spot that's up in the air in Seattle. And uh, can't forget to mention super utility player Taylor Motter, who got off with a splashy start with that Grand Slam home run. Now that uh, Gene Segura is back from the DL, back playing shortstop, what does the playing time situation look like for Taylor Motter in the longer run? Does he get some outfield time, for instance? Yeah, he, he's already had one game in the outfield, um, and uh, he's he's been playing a lot since since Segura came back. He's been playing a lot of a uh, first base for uh, because Vogelbach and uh, Valencia haven't been great. Uh, he's also played some third base while Kyle Seeger, Seeger missed some games with some minor hip issues. But if um, if that first base situation doesn't sort itself out between Valencia and Vogelbach, uh, Motter's going to be right there. Staying with the Mariners, uh, as bad as the news was with Mitch Hanniger, probably worse news is their rotation. You warned about their susceptibility to injuries and their lack of depth way back in March and again just last week in playing time tomorrow. And now Felix Hernandez has gone down. Uh, heaven knows how long he's going to be on the DL. We've discussed all these issues earlier this season as well and things are going from bad to worse yeah i really didn't understand the initial roster construction of this rotation uh, i wasn't thrilled as thrilled as some people were with the addition of smiley he was an injury risk um, nobody liked the addition of giovanni gallardo and he's pitched uh up to what everyone expected uh, down. him to. He's, his ERA is just below five. Um, Felix was an injury risk. He spent some time on the DL uh, last year, and now he's down with, with two, three weeks uh, uh, for, with shoulder inflammation after a decent couple of starts. He actually looked like a shadow of his former self the other day, and he's now sitting with an ERA near five. Now, before that game, uh, the, the, the Mariners brought up uh, X giant Chris Heston um, to add some long relief help and he was needed after Felix uh, was uh, taken out after two innings with his shoulder issues. Heston had actually been off to a pretty good start in uh, in AAA. I think he uh, he pitched uh, 17 innings. He had a 19 to 4 strikeout to walk ratio but he just got torched. He only lasted two innings against Detroit uh, after Felix left. And keep in mind, this is a Tiger team without uh, Miguel Cabrera and J.D. Martinez. It is not a great offensive team right now. So the Mariners are in trouble. It sounds like Chase DeJong is going to replace Felix first time around in the rotation. Uh, there's really nothing in Seattle's AAA or 40-man roster that's worth picking to, to or, worth rushing to pick up, I should say. Uh, you can't dismiss anyone these days. The best thing about the current situation is the opening that it creates for fantasy owners. Uh, I guess we have to keep an eye on it. What about, uh, I know they have a couple of starting pitchers in the minors, Andrew Moore and Max Povsey. They're under two ERAs right now in the minor leagues, but that's the minor leagues. Uh, any chance that we see one or both of these guys? Yeah, I I think at some point, uh, I think, I think, yeah, the, the, the answer is a definite maybe. Um, these guys have pitched really well and, and they look like they're going to have major league careers, but these are guys who have less than 30 innings of experience at the, at the, uh, at the high minors level. They're just dipping into double A for the first time. Um, limited projectability. Um, would Seattle promote them? Um, it's, it's possible. I mean, don't forget this team has told its fan base that they were going to compete this season. Uh, the real question is how early would they promote them? It, it seems like now if they promoted them, say in, uh, in early mid-May, it would seem like a panic move, though perhaps maybe later in June or July. 
By which time other things may have sorted themselves out. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, down in Los Angeles, the Angels are in your bailiwick. Uh, they finally got Cam Bedrosian into the closer role, and he celebrated by going down with yet another injury, a groin injury this time. They say it's mild, and it should be a very short stint on the DL. But in the meantime, how about Bud Norris? Former starter converts four consecutive save opportunities and basically elbows his way into that battle. You covered all of this. How does Bud Norris really look, and is he going to be part of the late-inning picture after Bedrosian returns? Yeah, you know, it's possible that we may have to adjust our long, long-term long projection for Norris. Uh, we had initially looked at him, and I think the Angels did too, as a long reliever who would get plenty of starts for what looked like a problematic rotation, and still is, frankly. Um, I've had a chance to watch Norris and have come away with, with kind of mixed reviews. He's, he's alternated between looking really good and being really fortunate when I've seen him. Uh, his new split finger pitch is terrific, as is his breaking pitch when he can command it. And, uh, his fastball velocity is up. He actually touched 97, uh, last night, uh, Thursday night against the A's in his fourth save. His overall command is another thing, though, and he still leaves some pitches over the middle of the plate, uh, that were hit right on the screws, either right at somebody, uh, the Los Angeles Angels defense has been helping him out, and his control's always been volatile. I, I can't argue with the, the results, though. He's been four for four for save opportunities. Uh, the opportunities and the pluses here make him a buy for me. Uh, I'm starting to wonder if Cam Bedrosian's a little injury prone. He had injuries in the minors. He's been on the DL a couple of times for the Angels. Uh, I, I would definitely take a shot at Norris if I was looking to pick up saves. Yeah, as far as Bedrosian being injury-prone, I, I would take the over on two DL stints in his Major League time. I seem to think, I actually had him once a couple of years ago, and he basically did the same thing, pitched an inning and a third, and then went on the DL, and I think he did the same last year. I could be wrong, but it seems like he's had a lot of injury problems over the last couple of years at the Major League level, and as you said, in the minors as well. Now, the Angels also acquired David Hernandez, who has a bit of a background with some closing. I think he was in Arizona for a while and he's been added to the late inning mix as well. What's the outlook for David Hernandez? Yeah, Hernandez actually has 19 uh, major league saves to his credit. For a couple of years there, he was looking like a uh, a potential closer in waiting, but uh, suddenly he got plagued by home runs uh, and 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 uh, too many walks. Uh, he still owns velocity and dominance. He was with Atlanta before the Angels acquired him, and he was he was doing quite well there. Uh, um, I think he'd only been scored upon once in eight innings, and he was striking out hitters again. Uh, I've seen him pitch here in uh, in the late innings on TV, and he looks really good. Uh, it was a small sample, obviously, two appearances, two innings. Uh, hasn't been scored upon yet. Uh, I think he's going to be in that late inning mix too. You've still got Houston Street down. You've got Andrew Bailey down. So the Angels are kind of making it up as they go along. And uh, I happen to have a few Oakland A's on my fantasy roster, so I've been listening to them lately, and it's been pretty discouraging to listen to, actually. I've got Sean Manaya. I've also got Stephen Vogt, the catcher, and boy, the A's just aren't scoring any runs at all, and against of all teams, the Angels, they really had str- uh, trouble scoring those as well. A lot of the offensive problem starts with uh, an outfield that just doesn't seem to be ready for the major leagues, and you've pointed this out in the past as well. Now Rajai Davis goes to the DL with a hamstring strain. He doesn't know when he's going to be back. What can we look for in the Oakland outfield beyond Chris Davis? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously Davis is fine in left field. Raj Davis has been a problem in center field before the injury. I mean, he had a terrible second half last year. He couldn't hit a lick. He can still run, but obviously you can't steal first base. 
And Matt Joyce has just been awful in right field. It reminds me of when he was with the Angels a couple of years ago. Now, he rebounded last year in Pittsburgh, but you just don't know what to expect of him anymore, and he's hitting well below 200 again. Uh, Mark Cannock couldn't get uh, untracked. Uh, he was demoted quickly in April. Another A's uh, outfielder, Jake Smolinski, is on the 60-day DL following shoulder surgery. They've got Jaff Decker in center field for uh, Davis right now, and he's really limited. He's got good plate skills, or at least patience. Doesn't have any power, doesn't make a lot of contact. Um, and, and to show you how bad things they are, uh, things are, the A's actually acquired Ryan Lamar from the Angels, uh, minor leaguer, and immediately added him to the 25-man roster. I've said all along that Oakland would have to scour the, uh, the, the majors for available outfield help, and, but now we're seeing the limits of a financially strapped team that just isn't competing this year. Uh, again, it's a playing time opportunity that fantasy owners need to, need to watch, uh, just in case somebody gets hot, but I'm just not seeing the long-term solution right now. Well, I have to say, Jock, I agree with you, and I think the long-term solution is going to be some kind of extended rebuilding process, and I know that's probably going to annoy fans who think that they've been going through rebuilding already, and it's just not panning out, especially with some of the trades. I mean, you look at this Oakland team and you think, goodness, Addison Russell would look mighty fine on this team right now, and of course, he's long gone for very little return. Uh, Do you think that anybody who has Oakland players in an American League-only format needs to start worrying about anybody with any talent being traded possibly out of the league. Yeah, um you know, it's 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 a really good question when you look up and down their roster um I, I'm trying to figure out other than maybe Stephen Vogt uh, who would who would want most of these guys <laughs> honestly it's a, it's a pretty bad offense right now. Um I'm not sure how many of them are rostered. Maybe you have Jet, Jed Lowry in, in some deeper leagues. He's actually been off to a pretty good start. You've got Trevor Plouffe. Uh, none of, a lot of these guys wouldn't start on, um, on first division teams, uh, but they are getting an opportunity in Oakland. Um, it's a pretty dismal situation. Well, speaking of possible teardowns, uh, Toronto had high hopes coming into the season and they got slammed with injuries and their offense just stopped producing without uh, third baseman Josh Donaldson. Uh, Jose Bautista's under the Mendoza line right now uh, or close to it. They just don't have enough depth. I think that's what people misunderstand, Jock, and I'm curious if you agree with me. Having a lot of money, having a lot of financial clout, doesn't really benefit a team insofar as it can just load up its roster with good guys. I think the difference is it can load up its bench with playable guys. And teams like Oakland and with the newly financially strapped Toronto Blue Jays, they just can't replace a Josh Donaldson. They can't replace a Jose Bautista if he's underperforming. They just don't have the depth. They're playing Ryan Goins out there. They're playing some pretty bad hitting characters, and it's certainly showing up. Yeah, um, and 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 it's a real juggling act. These teams, um, for uh, they they don't have a lot of the financial wherewithal that teams like say the Dodgers uh, um, do, or the Cubs, or the Yankees, or whatever. Um, they have to try to keep their 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 minor league contingent MLB ready, and uh, in the event of uh, of issues at the major league level. And right now, that's not the case with either the A's or Toronto. And you're right. Uh, Toronto looks like it's about ready to do a midseason tear down as well. Uh, and now, I mean, to, to, to top it off, you've got, uh, closer Roberto Osuna, Osuna, who looked like one of the, one of the sure things on that club. He can't produce a clean inning right now. I don't know whether it's under work or just not enough save opportunities. What's going on there? And I'm looking at his swing and miss and it's way down from last year. 
Well, it, of course, up here near Toronto where I live, it's certainly been a topic of much discussion on the uh, open mouth shows on radio and with the various columnists. And remember, he had a, an injury in the World Baseball Classic, and there's a lot of scuttlebutt now that says he never did recover from that. He certainly doesn't look like the same pitcher. He's he's uh, lost a lot of control. He's lost, as you said, a lot of swing and miss. And the problem that they have is that everybody they throw out there to take his spot is borderline even worse. You know, Biagini stepped in and he he was not if really super effective. Uh, Grilly stepped in, he was not even uh, less effective. It, it's a pretty bad situation. And then, of course, they lost Troy Tulowitzki, which is not exactly a huge surprise to anybody who's followed his career. But as I said, you lose a Tulowitzki for as little as he was really contributing, it's still a big step down to Ryan Goins or, or guys like that. Yeah, and you and I talked about this last week. They lost Josh Donaldson a, a, a week or two ago, and it's the same cast of characters that are now filling in for Tula Whiskey, and it's not getting any better. They're not going to score a lot of runs with these names. Um, it, it's an interesting situation because it's it's the type of thing, particularly getting back to the pitching staff for a minute, um, if there's too much pressure put on this rotation or this pitching staff, if, if too many players underperform or go down, um, it's another opportunity for fantasy owners with players going in against this team too, particularly hitters, because if you know the bullpen is going to have problems or you know the, the starting pitching is, uh, is, is, is in need of arms, uh, it's, it's a good time to stream some of your offensive players. All right, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, unfortunately, nothing but bad news this week. Maybe next week we can have a, an all-good news story from the American League. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview is next. Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Stay with us. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, minor league analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about the 2017 edition of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, our annual guide to the prospects and trends that will help you win your fantasy leagues. The Minor League Baseball Analyst has scouted more than a thousand prospects using Baseball HQ's exclusive player potential rating systems, sabermetric analysis, performance trends, and Major League equivalencies from the past five seasons. And there's lots more as well. Order your Minor League Baseball Analyst today for just $19.95 plus shipping and handling. And if you order directly from BaseballHQ.com slash MLBA17 and enter the promo code MINERS at checkout, you get $5 off your order. Plus, you also get a PDF copy of the book. And if that isn't enough, you get online updates for all 30 organizational lists and our top 50 fantasy prospects. Today's winning fantasy baseball players get on top and stay on top by knowing which prospects are the wannabes, the maybes, and the gonnabes. Go to the top. Go to BaseballHQ.com MLBA17 and order your minor league baseball analyst today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. It's Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, Patrick. How how are your teams doing? My teams drove a, a dirt bike, so they're not doing so well. My uh, my tout warriors and my mixed labor defense are hit a little bit of a speed bump with uh, with Madison Bumgarner. So tout warriors, I'm still hanging in there. Mixed labor, I've lost. I think it's four of my six first draft picks. It's a mixed labor as a, as a draft league, so you know, not making excuses. Going to keep plugging away, but when you lose, when you lose four of your top six players this time of the season, it's a little tough. It's such a hard league. These are such great players, and it's going to be hard to make up the ground. 
but none of them are out for an extended period of time, so I should get them all back. Well, maybe Bumgarner. I'll get them all back, and we'll uh, we'll get back in the race sooner than later. I remember before the season, Todd, you were talking about here on the show that you were going to target Clayton Kershaw in one of your leagues, and I know that you got Clayton Kershaw in that particular league. How is that working out so far? Yeah, well, this I wasn't. You know, it was a possibility of getting him an NL tout. NL Tout Wars. He went for a little more than I want. I did get him in the NFBC NL Only League. And uh, so far, so good. Uh, I haven't had any injuries in that league yet, which is sort of important to this point. But um, so far, leading that league, it's, it's obviously far too early. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's nice. Uh, I was a little nervous because I, I've owned Kershaw, but I've never plunked down uh, a large amount of money in drafting Clayton Kershaw. So I'm a, a bit nervous doing it, but... Um, the problem is if we end up winning that league, that Derek Hardy's probably going to want to join it next year and, and plunk down the money too. So uh, I, I, I think I'll take my chances though. And how much did you actually spend for Clayton Kershaw in that league? That league was 41. He went 44, 45, 46 in some of the other, in, 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 the, in the expert leagues. And the other thing, I just, I felt in this particular league, um, I, was able, I felt I would be able to build a team around Kershaw just know having been in the league before, knowing some of the tendencies, even though it's an NFBC league, uh, there's a huge carryover of play uh, of guys that join it. There's some that drop out and 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 new new blood comes in, but I still know the tendencies of the league, what they pay for. So I just felt I could build a team around Kershaw, uh, maybe a little bit easier than I could in in Tout Wars, which was the problem. Is I just wasn't sure I could get what I needed around him with that table, knowing knowing the Tout Wars table and knowing the NFPC table. It's not an indictment on either group. It's just knowing your, your opponents and knowing what I needed to do. I just felt more comfortable doing it in the NFPC room. You mentioned the impact of injuries, especially in a deeper league. It can be very difficult to manage. And I'm wondering, uh, Gene McCaffrey says this is one of the reasons he doesn't even like playing single league formats anymore because there's so many injuries right. and they're so impactful when they happen. And it got me to thinking about player projection and value projection. And I know that's one of your strengths. It's something you've been doing for a very long time. I, I imagine that you've always built in some kind of allowance on the, on the dollar projection based on a player's injury history but is it coming to the point where we really need to be maybe upping the ante on how much that projection is affected by injury history i don't know if we can change the projection i mean you may want to you know be more risk averse or less risk averse or 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 have backup plans in places when you draft an injury injury prone player i suppose i don't know i i it's and we're still the whole i'm seeing a lot of 10-day dl talk about how there's so many more players being put on the 10-day DL that it's it's because of the 10-day DL. Well, that's only I, I'm not even sure it's half the story. That's only like a third of the story. I want to know how how soon players are coming off, and I want to know the total days on the DL before I'm willing to say that it, there's there's not more injuries. It's just that people are putting players on the DL more. I'm I, I think there might even be more injuries. Is what I'm trying to trying to say. It's not just that there people are. I think part of it's more willing. But you know, I, don't, I think there's only so much you can do, as far as you know, just completely avoid injury guys. But back in in February, now we knew Donaldson had the calf injury for Tout Wars, but when we drafted Labor, mixed Labor, he hadn't been hurt yet. So you know, and he's been fairly durable. So I I don't know what I could have done there. Um, do you avoid some of these other guys? I mean, especially with Bumgarner, you know, there's no there was no way to project anything like that. So I guess. You, you just become more or less, you know, maybe you embrace it 
and you become more risk averse uh, or less uh, less risk averse and you just go for it with these injury guys because other people are giving a discount or you just completely avoid them but the people that you know i mean i guess you could say that jd martinez has had issues in the past and maybe i shouldn't have drafted him so high but it wasn't it was i don't want to say chronic but there was no the exact injury he got wasn't predictive i mean and, and i kind of factored in he would get hurt at some point of the season. I just didn't know it would be the first week or for the first week. So I don't know. Um, I guess I have to wait for the season to play out. But I, I just factor it in and, and just hope you pick the right players, I guess. Yeah, I was thinking more about giving a dollar premiums to players who have a good injury history. And I, and again, as you said, who could have seen this injury coming to Madison Bumgarner, for instance? He's a kind of a player we probably, before this season, would have given some kind of uh, dollar upgrade in our in our valuations based on the fact that he he just never misses games, and then you know he crashes a, a motorcycle. Well, you know who in the heck could see that coming? But there are players, generally speaking, who show up for work every day and have done for years. Mike Trout comes to mind, for example, uh, of course, a, a very high dollar player in the first place, but maybe worth the extra two or three bucks because you can be as confident as as you can be about anybody. Mike Trout's going to get his 155 games. He's going to get his 625 at bats, his 700 play appearances. Yeah, but so is Jose Altuve, who's missed games. <laughs> so if you, you would have given that same premium to Altuve and be burned on it at yep. this point. So we don't know. I mean, maybe you can say that Altuve plays a, a position where he may be more likely to get hurt than Trout. I don't know. But uh, I can see that. And that's part of, you know, part of what Baseball HQ does is with the, with the Mabry method and giving the injury and the health grades. So, I mean, I, I talk about all the time that uh, a dollar value is just a guide. There's upside, there's downside, and there's everything else. So during the actual draft, or auction, you you may be more or less more or less willing to go to that number or go to that draft rank based upon some of these ancillary factors. But to actually, I don't think I want. I I think I don't want to factor it in. I think I'm gonna be as honest as I can with how many at bats the player I think is going to get. But then contextually, I want to decide at the time do I want to take the chance that you know if it's a player that I factored in some some missing time for to, to maybe maybe I need to take this player maybe I need the upside of more playing time or maybe I like my team so much that even though my value says you know fifth round there is some injury risk there and I think I'd rather get a safer player in the fifth round so I don't know if I, if I actually do it do it into the actual dollar value or rank but it's just one of the other factors to consider when making that pick and it's why a, a, a preseason ranking or draft list isn't static it can't be it's there's you can't capture all you know i know someone's gone out there and tweet well maybe you should put a a confidence range or put a range of uh, around your projections i don't know maybe we should everybody's talked about it no one's ever done it and there's reason for it it's kind of hard it's hard enough to make a projection now you want to now you want to put a range on that projection um it's kind of hard yeah, it is. I, I one time at one time wondered if we could use those kind of box and whisker charts that they use for some purposes, and you could yeah. say, you know, the box is where fifty percent of the projection is likely to fall, and then you've got the outliers. And I think that could be potentially a way of getting around it. But the problem is, then you're starting to really get down into uh, t you're taking a, a fairly uh, error prone 
process because none of us knows exactly what's going to happen with these players and we have techniques that we use with weighted averages and so forth but there's a lot of stuff that goes on that is simply not predictable and then so you're, you're saying we're going to take a process that's somewhat prone to error anyway and then we're going to introduce new fine tunings of it that are even more prone to error and in the in the result we're going to get something that's less prone to error it doesn't seem to make sense to me yeah and, and to me like I mentioned the word contextual the, the, I want to I want to make and it's tough the difference between what I do for a living and present this this information for other people to use and when I use it myself, I when I use it myself I don't want the error bars I I just I trust myself to to, to look at a player's name and all that stuff's just there whether it's intuitive or not it's just there, so uh, you know as a person who does this for a living, I can see where the consumer may want it. Now, there's all sorts of things like the more information you provide, you know, in order to get it out on time, you know, it has to be automated. It has to, you know, <laughs> you have to think about just to be able to present the data, all the extra work to present all that stuff and changing projections every week. And can you can you automate this process so that there's no mistakes that go out there? I mean, we find all the time that, you know, the, the more data you try to present, the more in the, the more chance there are of being mistakes with your with your spreadsheet or the whatnot. But I don't, and it, to me too is is I've I, I've kind of talked about this before. The more I deeper I understand projections, the deeper I understand valuation, the more I understand that there's many more important things than putting together a team. So I don't having all these bells and whistles around my projection, I may lose sight of all that subjective stuff that I should trust myself to be able to do. Again, that's me, the drafter, not me, the information provider. So there's a I don't want to say a fine line there, but there's definitely a distinction. Todd, at uh, Rotowire recently you had a column I thought was really interesting about how to use and not to use the new statistics that we're seeing coming out of uh, the baseball parks. Uh, give us the overview. Uh, what mistakes are we making with these batted ball velocities and breaked, breaking curve pitches and how many inches they go down and sideways and so forth? Well, the, the, the sort of short answer is that we're, these are very good at describing what's already happened they're descriptive we're not yet at the point where they're predictive we can't look at you know we, we can take a, a 25 games worth of april data and we can explain why this particular player is playing better than we thought or worse than we thought we don't know yet if he's going to continue to play that way and i mean i used the word indictment before maybe this isn't maybe this is an indictment on some of my uh colleagues in the industry and people playing the games is that I mean, there, there, you want to be smart. You want to be the first to the finish line with, 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 with information. You want to break the news. You want to be the one that breaks the news. You want to be right about a particular player. So, and, and, and we also went through this phase of uh, sort of with BABIP and, and, and line drive rate and then learning that it wasn't just, you know, wasn't just everything regresses to 300. We kind of grew from there. We're sort of going through the second phase of that. And I think people missed out on that and they want to want to be right this time. And I think that they're they're using stats in the that they think they know what they're about, you know, exit velocity, all these things, but they're not proven to be predictive yet. And I think they're using them in a predictive manner. So I think what I said was by trying to be the smartest person in the room, they're outsmarting themselves. And it, it's you know it's the same way with you know every reporters want to break the story. So which which is more important right now, to be first or to be right? I'm still in the camp that I want to be right. I don't want to be first and wrong. I'd rather be 
last and well not last <laughs> but behind the curve and be right about it you know because that's what people are going to remember over time is who was right so i just think there's a lot of people out there have you know trying to you know analysts and you know trying to be too smart you'd have to not only know what a statistic does you have to know what it doesn't do and i don't i think that's where people are at they don't understand what some of these statistics don't do but when we're talking about the uh, exit velocities in particular or the amount of break that pitchers get on pitches, these are two things that strike me as being at least potentially more predictive than the kind of outcomes we, we know for a, for an example that just because a guy hits three home runs in a week doesn't mean he's going to hit three home runs next week. We all kind of just know that at this point. But we do know also or we suspect that a guy who hits the ball hard 65% of the time over the course of the last season is probably the kind of guy who hits the ball hard. Like we're more willing to accept it as a skill rather than as a, uh, a luck tainted type of thing. And, and, uh, how do you feel about that with these new stats? Are they helping us get closer to what is truly a skill versus what is perhaps a, a more of a combination of skill plus luck plus context plus park, et cetera? Well, that's exactly you know, that's exactly what they're doing. I mentioned whatever Babbitt, you know, Voris McCracken and the and the and the dips theory. Uh, you know, originally it was um, everybody regressed. You know, all pitchers regressed to 300. Then we found out that it was you know line ball, line drive, ground ball, fly ball. Then we found out that there was uh, hard hit and soft hit, medium hit. We keep further refining these numbers to flesh out some of the luck from the skill and that's what these that's what you know now also now we know a line drive well now we know the exit velocity we know the launch angle so now we can determine remember bis baseball info solutions they used to have what they called a fliner it was it a fly ball was it a line drive they called it a fliner to help further refine these things well now we can use the launch angle and the whatnot you know was a line drive caught by the shortstop or was it a line drive that made it to the outfield launch angle will help with that so we are further delineating uh, or you know refining a line drive or a fly ball at this point but again you meant you know for 20 games so and so's exit velocity is 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 higher than normal we don't know that that it, that that will sustain whether it's because he just faced a series of, of lesser pitchers or had platoon advantages more often than not during the last 20 games or something like that we don't know that it's you know predictive of what's going to happen in the next 20 20 20 games after that and that's what people are doing so and so's exit variety is higher than last year he's going to have a great season well we don't know that yet now is it a pretty good channel is there is there a chance yes there's a chance but it's not going to stay where it is it's going to fall back or is it we don't know and where is it fall back to and i think people are making too many definitive judgments or statements about players based upon data that they just don't know if it's predictive yet and yes we are refining it and i think we will get there but i think people are jumping the gun on it and again i mean you know someone out there is probably going to be right on one of these players i'm saying right being not right for the wrong reasons but i mean it turns out that that player actually was better and they're going to be remembered for that but if they make that same call on another player based upon that same information it's not this the probability doesn't say that they're gonna be right again you mentioned that we now can break down uh, batted balls not only by 
a generally sort of abstract trajectory ranking that's usually put in place by an observer who looks at it and says it's a line drive, it's a fliner, it's a fliner fly, it's a fliner liner. You know, they have all of these divisions, mm-hmm. and now we can sort of scale it back um, even more finely into uh, it was a 27-degree line drive, it was a 28-degree line drive, it was a 22-degree line drive. At some point, do we run the risk of breaking it down so finely or into such small slices that it becomes very difficult to use the data at all? I think that the one thing I've seen already is that people are bucketing or grouping the stats and saying, okay, I I don't want to call everything 95, uh, 96, 97, 98 miles an hour. I'll just say anything over 95 is hard. And which means we're right back to where we were before with hard hit balls, except now we have a bit better of a definition. Yeah, well, what, one of the things I'm, I'm sure you're aware, they've got a stat out there, they're calling barrels. And what they do is they take a look at a combination of the exit velocity and the launch angle, and they figure out what what combination of the, the two, when hits that when hits meet both criteria within both filters become hits a certain amount of the time and so that's one way one thing they're trying to do is is find out you know how many times a player barrels it and when they do barrel the ball to hit i don't know the exact number percent of the time but a, a large percent of the time so you know but still there's some subjective you know within that what percent of the time do you need for you know to be considered a barrel that sort of thing the fir- you know the 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 further you spar, the, the the more you slice up the data, the, the the more you parse it up, the more variance there is around that data, which just means the longer, the bigger, the longer amount of time, the bigger sample you need to reduce that variance. So right now, yeah, right now it's when we're when we're you know partitioning it off into different MPHs or, or or launch angles and the whatnot, we don't have a whole ton of data, years worth of data to do this. The variance around whatever it is we're trying to figure out is huge. That's why we need a couple more years or, or whatever it might be, depending upon the stat, to re- reduce the variance around whatever slice that we're doing. I mean, even if you look at, if you you know, to sort of a, a commonplace example that people can sort of relate to, if you look at park factors for homers for lefties and righties, left-handed parks and right, left-handed homers and right-handed homers, uh, if you just take a look at from the year-to-year park number. The left-handed park factor for home runs is just all over the place. It's, it's just so much more variant than it is for right-handed hitters just because there's fewer left-handed hitters. So there's fewer sample to go by. So just something as simple as park factor, you can sort of see how the sample size matters. And the further, you know, the more you slice up this data, the smaller the sample becomes and the more variance is introduced. I was struck by what you said about the barreling idea, and of course I've been seeing that quite a bit of late, but it, it, it struck me also that at some point there's going to be a marginal choice to be made at the very edge of what constitutes a barrel. So we all agree that 25 degrees at 100 miles an hour, that's a barrel. We all agree that 25 degrees of launch, 99 miles an hour is a barrel and so forth. My problem arises when we get to 22 degrees at 88 miles an hour. And half the half the crowd's going to call that a barrel, and half the crowd isn't. And all of a sudden, we're right back where we started with these kind of subjective choices, not based on our estimation of what we've seen, but on our decision, basically, to establish some kind of arbitrary point at which we say that's a barrel, that's not. I think it's, it's almost, I think it, it, you work backwards. You have to say to yourself, all right, I want the barrel number to be 
75% of barrels are hits or 50% of barrels are hits or 100% of, you know, 100% of barrels are hits. So you're almost, you, you start with the, the end point and you work backwards to find the, the actual uh, uh, number, you know, percentage of, the, of those two facts to, to get to your end point as opposed to the other way. So I, I probably should have looked up or, or should know what the actual, you know, how many, is it, is it 100% of hits or is it 90% of hits? Uh, to be a barrel. And then for, to your point, well, you know, I, I don't want to know 100%. I mean, if, if, if 75% of the time the guy gets a hit, I want to know, I want to know those limits as well, because that's a pretty good hitter. I mean, once you do drop the, the numbers just a little bit, the drop the velocity or, or raise or lower the angle, how much does that really change the percentage of getting a hit? So, I, I think there is something to that, but the fact that you're working backwards, but that's a subjective point. What do you, what, what, what number do you want to know? Do you want to know hundred percent of the time? Well, you know what? There's just not going to be that big of a range of, of, of launch angles and of exit velocities to get you hundred percent. So what, what number are you satisfied with that you can use in your analysis or comfortable saying that this player is better than that player? And to me, it's not a hundred. I think I want it more than 50, um, but you know, that's a pretty big range between 50 and a hundred, you know, so that's, uh, you know, reverse engineering or backward working from what you expect to, uh, therefore figure out what the inputs would be. And even at that, at some point, there's going to be a decision to be made at the margin because you're going to be able to move that, say you want 75%. You could say, well, I can slide, I can, I know where the middle of it is, but I can slide the, the box around up or down to include High, fewer low velocity, but but chain, therefore uh, making the launch angle different, or I can move it the other way. I'm going to require higher velocity, and I don't care so much about launch angle. It, it seems like there's a million ways of going about it, and as soon as that happens, when you open it up to interpretation or abstraction, that you're running into some problems as far as predictability. And the the comment you made that really struck me just now, Todd, was when you said, I want to know 70%, what's the 75% uh, outcome for hits? And it just made me think of some research I did uh, earlier this year about hard hit balls and so forth. And uh, one of the things I found after looking at three or four years, the last three or four years of data from Baseball Info Solutions was 72% of all line drives are hits, soft, medium, hard, don't matter. And mm -hmm. therefore, you know, any further parsing we do seems to be kind of beside the point. We know what the 72% uh, backward working uh, reverse engineering is. If it's a line drive, it's going to be a hit 72% of the time, roughly, you know, with, with, with a few uh, obvious differences. And the same thing is true when you talk about hard hit fly balls versus hard hit ground balls and, and soft and medium hit. All of these kind of things have established pretty reliable hit levels over the last at least four or five years that I've looked at. And it wouldn't surprise me if we went back farther that those numbers haven't changed a lot over the years. Yeah, now the question there becomes, you know, a line drive. Are there some players that hit more outfield line drives, infield line drives? Hit, I mean, it's not, hit a line drive softer if it's, if, it's, if it's possible. We're still, you know, sort of bound by the classification, and that's where the that's where this data will further come in. And it may turn out that the data doesn't improve, doesn't refine that 72%. I mean, I use that same 72% when I do my uh, when I do some ex my own expected BABIP. I need to talk to Mike Podhorzer 
a lot, and he has his, I, you know, I have a similar, well, I have my own expected BABIP. That's kind of one of his things. And I use that 72% and that, that sort of thing in, in that when I do that. So, you know, is there some, I, I'm looking and thinking about a player to me like Xander Bogarts, who, I, I don't know, maybe it's just because I see him or whatever. I just say to myself, man, that guy hits the softest line drives I've ever seen. But isn't that, that's kind of like a, you know, it's a compliment. He's hitting line drives, but they're soft, but but yet they're line drives. So, and maybe I'm even wrong about that. I don't know. But um, it's just it's just one of those weird things where if we can figure out further to find a line drive based on this data, then, yeah, maybe we can figure out a little refined batting average a little bit more. But then there's just, when you are refining it, is are just introducing so much variance that you're sort of still within the same error bars that you were at the 72%. So it, it's uh, that's why we need a lot more data in order to figure this out. The one other thing I've noticed in reading the coverage, and I agree with you that a lot of it seems to be being misapplied at this point, is that we see a lot of mentions of a player's average exit velocity. And that strikes me as being a, a fairly dangerous thing because two players with vastly different profiles could end up with very similar average velocities. For instance, you could have 10 batted balls, five of them at 110 miles an hour, the other five at 40 miles an hour, and that's a 75-mile-an-hour average, which would be the same as somebody who hit 10 straight 75-mile-an-hour batted balls. But surely I'd rather have you as a hitter because some of those 110-mile-an-hour bombs are going to do some good, but all the 75-mile-an-hour ones are going to be outs. Right, right. And then, then you get, you know, is it does he, does he barrel up the – the breaking pitch or not barrel up the breaking pitch versus the fastball and that sort of thing. But yeah, you're right. The sample size matters a lot as far as that goes. And just in general too, um, kind of when we, back when we were talking, you know, Voris or Kraken and, and, and dips and, and BABIP, and it's not just, uh, it's just not line drive, ground ball, fly ball anymore. It's not just exit velocities, launch angle. So you could, you can say too, that if, if a guy's hitting the ball, you know, 75 miles an hour on the ground or 75 miles in the air, whatever, there's a different chance of getting hit too. So those two things sort of have to go hand in hand at this point is velocity and launch angle. But you're right in general. And it's kind of, it's, 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 it kind of actually, you know, it goes back to the, uh, you know, head to head leagues, you know, maybe even fantasy football. Do you want the consistent player or do you want the, the guy that, you know, the guy, the highs High and the lows, player, so, yeah. you know, even, you can even talk about it in, in, uh, in, in drafting, uh, in, in drafting, we, we sort of we alluded to at the very beginning, risk aversion. Some players, you know, just you know have a higher their their ceiling is higher than their floor. But then you know the number you use, you know, you have to know what the seventy five percent does. But d- depending upon what that average is, I think you definitely you know exactly you know the average isn't the more telling statistic. Um, I want to know a little bit more than just that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that goes back to what we said earlier, too, about what the consumer wants, which is some kind of expression of error bars. What is the floor? What is the ceiling? What is the likely outcome? Mm. And those kind of things. And I think, uh, I don't know whether it's in your commercial interest or in your intellectual interest to pursue that kind of line of thinking, but it's really important uh, when you go into a draft or when you go into an auction to have an idea of where a player sits in all of those things, whether somebody wrote it down for you or not. You 
need to know what's the likely outcome. Is there a big upside here or no? Is there a small downside here or no? Mm -hmm. All of those kind of things. And typically we do have that kind of idea. We don't necessarily have it written down, but somebody in an auction situation says, James Loney for a buck. And right away, there's kind of a profile that falls into your mind about okay, I know what the I know what the the likely outcome is, a decent average, not that many home runs, kind of mediocre, just maybe slightly right. above on the counting stats, and the upside is very limited. There's not going to be a lot of power here, and the downside is injury and uh, maybe losing his job, all these kind of things because he's a non-power hitting first baseman. Whereas there might be another player who has a lower uh, likely outcome, but has a huge ceiling because he's younger, or because he, Joey Gallo, for instance. Uh, we, we all know what right. that is, but we also know there's a 60 home run upside if everything falls into place. And that's the kind of thing that you have to be aware of. And again, I don't know whether it's in your interest to try to present that to er- about every player to every consumer. Yeah, well, that's where I run into the, the conundrum because as a, as a, I don't I don't need it. I know that. I mean, to me, I I don't need to see error bars around Loney and error bars around Gallo to know that that's the deal. But the consumer might, you know. So that's that that is you know, that's sort of the the, the conundrum. And, and, you know, if if I guess if if I ever got to a point where I believed you know would would make more money as a as a provider if I were to provide it, then I'd probably do it. But I don't know that there's enough people out there. That would, you know, to, to make it worth the time, you know, I think I'd rather spend my time writing pieces about the, uh, about how to draft than, you know, presenting the error bars. And to be honest with you, I don't know that I'm actually, you know, I mean, I know statistics. I don't know them that well to be able to do that uh, and, le- and at least be confident that they, that they were presenting what they were supposed to be presenting. Before we leave this whole idea, I wonder. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Russell Carlton's story in Baseball Prospectus. He's the guy uh, mm-hmm. who's called Pizza Cutter at the time, I think, who wrote a, a couple of essays a few years ago now about where rate stats actually stabilize after how many plate appearances or batters faced. And just recently he wrote a, this article in Baseball Prospectus, and he said, you know what, almost everybody's using this wrong. And the main, I think his main beef, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was that the uh, idea was that his research was always backward looking. And when he said stabilize, he meant if you went back and repeated this exact p- period of games against these same pitchers in these same parks, you can be uh, confident to 70% or whatever his number was that you would get the same kind of outcomes. But what we've done is we've said, okay, he says that swinging strike rate stabilizes after 80 plate appearances. And so after 80 plate appearances, we say this batter's swinging strike rate is now stable and we can project it the rest of the way. And he says, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, he, to be fair, you know, he, he actually said that he implied he was involved. He it was part of his fault. He said he wouldn't even written that article. I think the word stability is part of the problem because it was never stable. It was just a, a bit more reliable. But uh, the point being, so it, you know, sixty plate appearances, and so his point was, like you mentioned, that if those exact sixty were repeated, he'd get the same contact rate. But if you take the next sixty and the next sixty and the next sixty, it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the same contact rate. He found out you had to go closer to 150 for that to occur, and that's kind of that's the number that we're interested in as prognosticators. We want to know going forward what 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 we can expect, 
And and even at that point, it's still not saying that it's stable, which is the, why I didn't like the word stable. It doesn't necessarily mean it's stable. It just means there's a, a, a chance that it's better or worse than what we originally thought it was. And um, I don't know. I, I guess I kind of, as I mentioned before, I mean, guy like guy like Carlton's a guy that knows knows more about stats, you know, has forgotten, you know, the old, what's the expression, forgotten more about stats than I'll ever know. So I have, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable <laughs> in critiquing or analyzing something that he wrote, but um, I kind of got lucky when I would actually apply this data. I didn't just use that 60 plate appearances. I actually, I didn't, I didn't, I think I, I multiplied them all by three or four, and, and, and I actually kind of got lucky that I actually hit upon the number that it turned out to be really the case. And um, just because doing 60 just moved my in-season projections far too much. So I kind of, it, it's weird. I was trying to get, use a more objective way of doing it, but I was still subjectively setting my, my filter. And uh, it, we can you know, talk about, you know, why, whatever. I mean, I, I just, I did I wasn't looking to be exact. I was just looking for players that had a good chance to move in either direction. Projections already have enough wiggle room with regression that even if I wasn't exactly right, I was at least confident that I was getting players that I was trending up or down, and that would help me in my analysis. But um, at this point, I forget what the usual question was at this <laughs> point. But um, yeah, so the the thing, and and he, he didn't he didn't even it wasn't even the point of the article, but you know sort of under one of the underlying thing was for those of us that are using it to project. It's no longer 60 plate appearances. It's closer to 150. And he didn't even offer the the number for all the other stats. And I think that, you know, walk rate and hit rate and all that stuff. And I think the reason being, he didn't want to. He didn't want to have people continue to use this research in projection theory. Yeah, I thought so too. And when I when I looked at the article, I know some of the uh, some of the so-called stability rates were already relatively long. I I can I know that there are some yeah. of them that are half a season or three quarters of a season, which means if you multiply them out, uh, as as uh, Russell Carlton seems to suggest, that probably the case. If you if you're looking for projectability rather than stable stability, then uh, now you're talking about two or three seasons of data before you can confidently say this guy has a particular skill or this guy has a particular likelihood of outcome or whatever it is. I thought it was really interesting and it was a, a pretty uh, bold article for him to write because, uh, as you said, he was perfectly willing to say that he was among one of the first guys to misuse the data. And uh, since that's happened, so a lot of people have done likewise. So good for him. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire and ESPN. And Todd, you wrote a piece recently, speaking of Mia Culpa, where you were talking about managing <laughs> your pitcher rankings and you acknowledged right away in the piece that you thought you had been doing something uh, sub optimally and then you went on to say what you need what you thought that was and how you needed to correct it first of all congratulations for admitting it and uh tell our listeners what you thought you realized yeah well to sort of set it up uh, real quickly i'm doing the rest of um, sorry the weekly the, you know the weekly picture rankings for rotowire and this incorporates matchups and two starts that sort of thing and you know we all see we've all seen these or similar columns in the past and I've always wondered, you know, how do the how does the person how does the ranker get the ranks? And I've always felt that it was more subjective. They start with sort of okay, Kershaw's better than 
uh, Scherzer, who's better than Bumgarner, who's better than Syndergaard, you know, and, and then in their head, all right, well, Scherzer's got this matchup, and Kershaw's got two stars, you know, and kind of doing that all the way down to the bottom and just kind of move guys up and down based on feel as opposed to actual numbers. And I felt that, you know, if I can, you know, I, in DFS, I, 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 I project, I mean, I hate to you know, keep using the word, I project how that player will do that game and that matchup. Why can't I do it? For full seven days, I mean, given that the schedule is going to change, and man has to change this week, but you can only go by what you know at the time. So you go by the matches of the time, and then once you, you know, the, the, now I have a, a projection for a two-start pitcher versus a one-start pitcher with the matchups considered. How does that affect my fantasy team? So I was, I mean, uh, that's the point that I sort of uh, didn't, didn't. I don't think I did properly the first time. I think I did the. The, the being able to do the projection part and summing up the two games. But I, I didn't like the way I originally um, had it influencing how your your fantasy team does. I just kind of ranked the numbers in a vacuum, the, the, the array and the whip. You know, you convert them to counting stats like you would in conventional valuation and just kind of ranked that rotisserie style. It didn't really answer the question, how does that affect your own team it just i know that this guy's better than this guy but how much better you know rotisserie you know i think i don't know if it's one of the charms of one of the one of the downfalls of how we score in rotisserie if you if you win a category by 100 units or you win it by 10 units you still get those same 12 or 15 or 10 points whatever it is that the first place guy gets some may say it's a charm some may say it's a downfall when i do that's how i was scoring rotisserie style but that, when, I, when I'm trying to do rankings based off of it, I have to incorporate the difference, the relative amount between each uh, scoring point because it helps or hurts the standing the, the team more. So those were sort of the two changes that I incorporated was scaling the, the relative points in each category so that the relatively more points are going to not just get you one more point versus in rotisserie style, but it, you know, it could be 1.2 or 1.4 more points and just doing a better job of uh, figuring out at the, at the end of the season, uh, how much, you know, doing this in wins versus this in ARA versus this in strikeouts on a weekly basis, how that really affects how you do towards the end of the season. So, um, you know, Part of me can say, duh, you should have figured, you know, you knew that you were, you knew you were doing this piece in the off season. Why didn't you do all this work? Well, I, I, I did, and I thought I had the way, you know, it looked good by eye, but once the season gets underway and you start to see all the different two-start two matchups and how things flow, it just no longer looked good by eye. And so shame on me for not 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 doing as much work in the off season as I should have to come up with this method. But on the other hand... I actually changed it midweek. I actually, you know, posted rankings and then a day later said, you know what, these stink. You know, so someone had already seen the bad rankings and that, that you know, some people got, you know, would have just not done that. But I'd rather, I'd rather get yelled at in the comments for that than getting yelled at in the comments for just having stinky rankings. So yeah, I was, should have done a better job in the off season, but it just, uh, I, I think the, the bottom line is they're better now. And I think that's what's more important. And finally, Todd, one of the things that you write every week that I really, really enjoy, partly because it covers one of the leagues I'm in, 
is uh, you look fabulous with fabulous spelt with two A's. It's a weekly thing that you do alongside with uh, other experts who are in the leagues covering fab bidding that went on in that week. And uh, I really like this. And without going into too many of the players, I don't think that's germane here, but you made a comment about it. You said a $5 bid in a $100 league is often seen as the same thing as a $50 bid in a $1,000 league, just using simple ratios. But then you said it's not the same thing, and I think you're right, and I never thought of it this way, but explain why 5 out of 100 is not the same as 50 out of 1,000. Yeah, as I, I, th- I think I said in the piece, you know, 5 and 50 may not be as good of an example as 50 and 500. Uh, the main, you know, a lot of it, some of this depends on whether you allow $0 bids in either league. So that that point aside for a moment, the main reason being, even in this, when you have the $1,000 limit, and we have that in labor, and we have that in the NFPC, there are still people that put in $1, 2 and $3 bids for the, for the you know, if you, if you say you just, you don't care who you'll get, you want somebody, you just can't differentiate between them, you just string together 10 $1 bids, and that's the guy you get, and that's fine. You didn't care which of those 10. So there are, there are some $1 bids in the NFPC and, and mixed labor, and you know the same you're getting the same player as a $1 bid in tout, which is a $100 limit. I'm sorry, labor, which is a $100 limit. Tout's 1000 It doesn't even matter what, what leagues are which. It's 100 versus 1000 So the point being, if you bid you know, 500 in a $1,000 league, you still have 500 $1 bids left. If you bid 50, and this is the extreme, obviously, if you bid 50 out of 100 in a $100 limit, you only have 50 bids left, 50 $1 bids left. So to me, it's not a, it's not a direct scale. If, if I'm looking at this data and I'm looking at uh, the, the, the labor, which is out of 100, and there's no, do- there's no $0 bids, so I want to relate this to my own league with no $0 bids, and I see someone bid 6 7 or $8, to me, that's not 60, 70, or 80. To me, that's 100. I don't know what the exact number is. It's 100, 120. I think it's more than a 10 times upgrade just because I've got so much more wiggle room at the back end. So, And I, I do see people a lot, other people that analyze these pieces, do just that. Take your bid in 100 and multiply by 10 for 1,000. Or take the bid in 1,000 and divide it by 10 for 100. I don't think it's a direct relation. Now, I don't know what, if there's a way to figure out exactly what it is. But in my head, I like to say, all right, NFBC paid, you know, two hundred and thirty dollars on the average for this player. Uh, that's twenty-three divided by ten. I want to bid sixteen or seventeen in my hundred-dollar league. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting from that point of view that when people are out there, consumers are out there, guys who play, and they look at these experts leagues for some guidance on what to bid. I think that conversion is really important. And I think that the, what you said in the in the piece that you wrote was really revealing because we do need to rescale. I think it's very important now that we think about the 100 versus 1,000. And I know there are leagues where it's 260, which has a different kind of ramification. Right. Uh, there are other leagues where it's way less and other leagues where it's way more. And I think the key point is that you have to remember how many minimums do you have left after you make the bid if it's successful. Mm-hmm. And from that point of view, I think that is a very helpful thing to think about because 500 minimum bids is a lot different kettle of fish than 50 mm-hmm. minimum bids. It just cuts you down. On the other hand, you'd have to also think, wouldn't you, that it's so unlikely that you'd want to make 500 minimum bids in the course of 10 years, never mind one year, that perhaps the... the uh, 
the the way to think about it is something else. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, that's that's why I just don't know exactly how you scale up. That's why that's why you're willing to go more than ten times from a hundred to a thousand because you're not going to use all those minimum bids, and um, and and so I don't I don't know the it's fab is, you know, there's some people that again back to the whole charm versus detriment of it. You know, some people think the charm of fab is to try to figure out on a week to week basis what the market is and bid accordingly other people think that that's a you know a, a downfall or, or uh, why fab isn't any good because you can't do a, a more value-based bid it's more you know trying to figure out the market so and, and to me if you know part of it too is just if other people are using that 10 times rule one way to beat them is to multiply by 12 or whatever it might be so it's um i'm actually you know for what it's worth i i actually i uh you know i know our colleague ron chandler falls on the other end he doesn't he doesn't like the fact that every week you sort of have to you know in theory think about the market you know he just and i think he's probably right in that it's still a a complete guess based on nothing but but your feel i don't know some think that's a charm other other people think that's a isn't what the game should be all about i don't know but i guess at this point i fall on the uh i fall on the side of the fence where 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 it's a charm and, and it's and i know that when you're right, you know, you weren't necessarily right. You got lucky, but I don't know. It, to me, it's still a game, and that's part of the game aspect of it. So um, my, the bottom line for me, though, is I'm I'm more aggressive, and I've proven it in uh, – well, actually, I've proven it in mixed labor. I only have $100. I'm usually more aggressive in fab than most people, um, just keeping in mind, you know, leaving yourself enough $1 bids. I don't like the fact that Tout Wars has $0 bids and a $1,000 limit to me. You know, if if you have a thousand dollar limit, you should be able to manage your fab that you don't have to use zero dollar bids. I don't mind. You know, on the other hand, labor has a hundred dollar limit. I wish they had zero dollar bids. So uh, I think the NFPC gets it right. A thousand dollar limit with one dollar bids, minimum one dollar. And when you put it that way, I'm just thinking about tout as a thousand dollar zero dollar minimum. That maybe uh, I should just be rethinking my entire ideas about scale because I don't have to worry about how many minimum bids I have left. I have infinite yeah. uh, minimum bids left. <laughs> yeah, that's the other point about it. Said so let's you know forgetting about that at the beginning. Then exactly you just you now you feed that back in. So instead of feeding a bunch of one dollar bids and you just want somebody, uh, you, you feed a bunch of zero dollar bids just so you get somebody. You know what? I'm still convinced that there's people in tout wars that don't know we're allowed zero dollar bids, but that's all right. <laughs> I also think that maybe when I'm, uh, as a person playing in this $1,000 league, and I, I think whether it's a dollar or zero really doesn't enter into it here, but if I have a, a list of players that I really do want to be sure that I get one of, maybe I should be bidding uh, $5 on each of them instead of one or zero, because I'm not costing myself that much unless I get so many of them that I pull myself down for the potential miss on the uh on the uh, league crossover market that happens around the trading deadline every year. Last year, Jonathan Lucroy became the object of many people's desire. And, and mm -hmm. that I think that kind of sticks in people's minds that I want to be the guy this year who has that. And uh, you, you kind of let some guys get away early who you might have ha been able to get. And another aspect of it that enters into this valuation question is, can you trade to acquire fab dollars at any point during the year as well? Because in Tout Wars, you can. And uh, last year at the break, there was a whole flurry of trading activity that had to do with moving $100 here and $100 there as guys jockeyed for position. So it could be that if you're allowed to trade for it, maybe it doesn't matter at all. 
And plus, as you know, in Tout Wars, we have the rule about uh, being able to uh, recoup some of your uh, investment in a player that got on the DL. You get, depending on what time of the season, if you're if you're willing to uh, just drop a player that's on the DL, you get some of that salary back in terms of in, in, by way of FAP. So that's another way people like to increase their their totals. So you're right as far as you know the, 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 trying to trying to you know play the game. Um, what to bid and try to be have the hammer at the deadline, you know. Take you know you get you know at least in Tout Wars we need to take a look at to see is someone trying to be slick and not dropping a player to drop them at the week before just to sort of you know mess up with someone's plans just you know is is or you know is he or isn't he going to drop such and such and reclaim the fab? Now of course we have rules where these things have to be announced well in advance so that at least that week's planning is done knowing exactly between trades and drops or rebates you know you can't you can't do it last second everything has to be uh defined right after the previous transaction period so you have you know the entire week what you're dealing with but still you know you, you can you can scale uh temper moves along the way based upon what you think other people well, if i pay 50 bucks Three weeks before July 31st, I still should have more money than so and so, uh, but you don't necessarily know that because so and so may either trade or have a guy buried on DL to, to to cash in. And you know, again, whether this is the charm of it or whether it just makes uh, a crapshoot even more so, I don't know. But um, like I said, I mean, maybe it's because I I I have to apply so much of this value and. And, and, and hardcore stuff to some of the other part of the games that I kind of look at fab as a way to, I don't want so much have fun, but man, I, I don't want to have to also apply these philosophies to fab too. You know, it's just kind of, you know, I, I'm kind of burned out of, uh, and, and fab, you know, I, so I kind of embrace, I embrace the, um, the unknown aspect of fab. Uh, I, I read that Ron Chandler bit about uh, his problems with Fab, and I agree with, uh, in theory, with with what he was saying. But what I don't remember reading about was what what's the alternative as far as he's concerned, uh, and what what could it be if it was going to be like ideal? Yeah, I haven't. He, he you know, Ron, he writes for ESPN. He also uh, posts the same column on RonChandler.com. He did write a follow-up. I have not, I have not read it yet. Uh, so even though it's a, you know, we're colleagues on ESPN. The following week to that piece, he wrote a piece about uh, alternatives. So uh, I, I cannot speak to them yet. But he did write that the following week, uh, some, you know, what's the expression? Don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with a solution. Right. Well, the next week he, uh, you know, don't know what they are. You know, if you're a member of RonChandler.com, you can read them. ESPN Insider. But he came with some solutions. And uh, neither one of us has read it, although that's going to be one of the first things I do when I get <laughs> off this call. But uh, what do you think is the solution? If you wanted to have the ideal system, how would you uh, how would you allocate free agents? I don't. You know what? I don't know if there is an ideal. I mean, I, I not having read Ron's pieces, I, I don't know. I, I I guess I'm okay with the with the with the way that NFBC thousand dollars with one dollar bids. I mean, we we tried Vickery. In 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 tout wars and part of it's administrative in that depending upon how you put bids in, you could literally run into some infinite loops when you try to, um, uh, to you know, solve who gets who. So part of that you know part of that is, is administrative, but I mean I I get I don't know I, I'm torn. To me it's to me it's a thousand dollar one dollar and I'm just I'm still torn 
to use Vickery or not to use Vickery because I think that's that that gets you closer. You know, it, it helps solve the market. But I still say to myself, if you came to the conclusion that it cost you X units and you're willing to pay X units to get that player, that's how much you should pay. So I guess if I would I'd probably lean away from Vickery, but I don't I don't know of a better system because I don't think that there I don't know if there is a perfect system out there. Well, I think the perfect system would be if you just reconvened every week and had an actual live auction. But, but <laughs> talk about it, not so much an administrative difficulty. It's actually fairly easy to administer. It's just fairly hard to get everybody together once a week for 26 weeks. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a plus one on that. All right, Todd. Thanks a million for uh, talking with uh, me again. I really enjoy the conversations. I like thinking about what we think about when we get, get together like this. It's always a real pleasure. As well on my end too. So uh, you know, we didn't we didn't offer a whole lot of player analysis out there this time, but hopefully we gave people something to think about when they do their own player analysis. Well, you know, the, like the saying goes, uh, give a guy a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a guy how to fish, and uh, well, basically sits around in a boat drinking. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? But I think it's all valuable yeah, if you think about it. We have plenty of player analysis at baseballhq.com. There's plenty here on this podcast. So I think we're doing a job, Todd, and I appreciate you helping out give, doing that job with us. Excellent. That's, that's part of my favorite part of my job. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and of course is a regular guest here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. When we come back, our regular commentaries stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy. And I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up with great information across all the major fantasy formats, news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time tomorrow, coverage of the American League West has Jock Thompson's look at a tale of two left fields, while in the American League Central, Mike Shears looks at middle infield musings. In Facts and Flukes, Brian Rudd analyzes Corey Seager, Jamison Tyon, and more. And in the Speculator column, as we mentioned, Brent Hershey has snap judgments on pitchers, and Ray Murphy has the hitters. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, the full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Baseball HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here, with a report on Blue Jays outfield prospect Anthony Alford, is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Toronto Blue Jays' Anthony Alford is off to a spectacular start as he looks to rebound from a disastrous 2016. Alford, the Blue Jays' number 3 prospect, is a plus athlete who is just starting to tap into his raw tools. 
Alford struggled in 2016 with both injuries and inconsistent play. A knee injury and a concussion limited him to just 92 games last year, and the 22-year outfielder hit just 236 with 117 strikeouts and a 65% contact rate. When fully healthy as he is in 2017, Alford has plus-plus speed and is starting to develop average to above power. In the past, he's shown a solid hit tool and a good understanding of the strike zone, posting a career 15% walk rate, and Alford has the potential to develop into a 2020 leadoff hitter with plenty of fantasy value. On the year, Alford is hitting 475 with a 563 on base percentage and a 625 slugging percentage. He has three doubles, one home run, and six stolen bases in seven attempts for AA New Hampshire. While this is obviously still a very small sample size, Blue Jay fans and fantasy owners have to be breathing a sigh of relief as Anthony Alford looks to have regained his form. And those in long-term keeper format should definitely add Alford if somehow he is still available. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-ups, Ben Gamble, Cody Bellinger, Teoscar Hernandez, and many more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at Moncada time in Chicago. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. The last week of April saw a couple top prospects make their major league debuts out west, with Christian Arroyo getting the call in San Francisco and Cody Bellinger making his debut in L.A. on April 25th. Expect to see more highly touted prospects like this pop up over the next three to four weeks as the Super 2 deadline approaches, and this includes the top dog on our HQ100 prospect list, Yoan Moncada. Mike Shears covered the middle infield woes for the Chicago White Sox in his playing time tomorrow column on April 27th, noting that Tim Anderson's off to a slow start with a 213 batting average thanks to some bad plate skills, a 2% walk rate and a 202 expected batting average. Anderson's double play partner up the middle at second base, Tyler Saladino, hasn't been much better. Saladino's hitting just 218, no homers, two steals, and a hacker-like 60% contact rate so far. Saladino's Mendoza-level expected batting average says things won't get too much better from here, which is a similar conclusion that we drew in a facts flukes column on Saladino just before opening day. The White Sox don't have many other options up the middle on the 25-man either, as guys like Lurie Garcia and Yolmer Sanchez, who Mike both noted in his column, don't really tip the scales from a fantasy standpoint. So going back to Moncada, who's off to a, a pretty good start in AAA. Moncada's hitting 297 with a 373 on base, 500 slugging percentage through 74 at-bats. Moncada's got four homers and five steals in that span, which points to the elite raw tools that we pointed out when giving Moncada the nod as the game's best fantasy prospect. Moncada does have some holes in his swing, and that's part of his game. That hasn't gone away this season, as he's got 27 strikeouts to just nine walks. So if the White Sox starting middle infield combo of Tyler Saladino and Tim Anderson continue to struggle, the situation will be ripe for a Yoan Moncada call-up in mid to late May. Moncada's already owned in your keeper league, but redraft owners who can stash a bench spot for the next three weeks might be handsomely rewarded in the second half. 
If you can get a head start, I'm on Kata's official call-up to the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Los Angeles second baseman Willie Calhoun and Colorado relief pitcher Matt Carasidi, And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Although you probably heard about the Dodgers promoting Cody Bellinger and Julio Urias, have you heard about the current power outage in Los Angeles? The Dodgers are one of only three National League teams to have no home runs produced by a second baseman in 2017. In fact, through Thursday, April 27th, the Dodgers surprisingly have not produced a single home run at first base, second base, or third base in 2017. At least they have produced six home runs at shortstop thanks mainly to Corey Seager, who has stellar skills across the board, according to Brian Rudd's April 27 Facts or Flukes column on BaseballHQ.com. Based on that, could it be time to embrace the youth movement in Los Angeles? After all, Willie Calhoun, our first frequent flyer, is currently batting 310 at AAA in 2017. He led the Texas League with 88 RBI last season. Plus, he finished fourth among all AA players in home runs in 2016 with 27. Not bad for a second baseman. Then again, Willie Calhoun is not known for his defensive range, which may ultimately affect his playing time in Los Angeles. That's why Willie Calhoun, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered as long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Still, as Patrick Davitt and Ryan Bloomfield pointed out last week's edition of Baseball HQ Radio, second baseman Logan Forsyth has a broken toe and Chase Utley is struggling, making it appear that Willie Calhoun's call-up might be just around the corner. Another call-up that might be just around the corner is that of 25-year-old Colorado Rockies reliever Matt Karasidi was named to the Eastern League All-Star team in 2016, has been equally impressive in 2017. Not only has Matt Karasidi converted all five save opportunities for the AAA Albuquerque Isotopes in 2017, but he's not allowed one earned run through his first six appearances in 2017. Is this deja vu? Maybe. Prior to his Major League debut on August 12, 2016, Matt Karasidi had previously pitched seven scoreless innings at AAA. Sound familiar? Not to mention that with an elite dominance rate of 13.5 strikeouts per nine in 2017, Matt Karasidi could potentially prove to be a very valuable bullpen asset if called up. Yet despite his high 90s fastball, you shouldn't expect Matt Karasidi to close for the Rockies initially. He should be on your radar, though, as a possible injury replacement for Greg Holland later this season. He's definitely worth a flyer. While Matt Karasidi's 919 ERA and 19 appearances for the Rockies in 2016 may seem scary, especially at Coors Field, Tom Seaver once articulated that the most... The, the thing most people don't understand is that pitching isn't the same every time out. It's different each time, and that difference is what makes it worth taking a chance on both Willie Calhoun and Matt Carasidi, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale that's centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse, strong bets to sit. 
In between the ones, that's what we call the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at weekend matchups including Clayton Kershaw and Chris Archer, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Two left-handed pitchers named Clayton are scheduled for starts on the road this Sunday. L.A. Dodgers ace Clayton Kershaw and San Diego Padres retread Clayton Richard. It's no surprise that Kershaw has this weekend's marquee matchup with one of only two strongly recommended start matchup ratings at 231. It is a surprise that San Francisco Giants rookie left-hander Ty Block joins Kershaw in the strongly recommended start range with a matchup rating of 260. But that's partly because Block is facing Richard, who has a strongly recommended sit matchup rating of minus 201. Like Block, Kershaw faces an opponent with a strongly recommended sit matchup rating. For his Major League debut, Philadelphia Phillies rookie right-hander Nick Pavetta is at home with a matchup rating of minus 293 to go up against baseball's best starting pitcher. That's the largest matchup rating differential of the weekend at a whopping 524. Pavetta struck out 138 in 148 minor league innings last season, and last week he was one of Alex Becky's frequent flyers. Remember, in April we used 2016 pitcher metrics and team statistics to calculate our matchup ratings. The 2016 Phillies and Dodgers had mirror image one-loss records. L.A. won 91 and lost 71. Philadelphia won 71 and lost 91. The Phils averaged a major league worst 3.8 runs per game and they allowed the fifth most runs per game, averaging almost five. At home, Philadelphia had the sixth worst record, losing seven more than it lost. On the road, L.A. was a game below the league average, which was four games under 500. Against teams with winning records, Philadelphia was 22 games under 500, ranking fifth in Major League Baseball. Versus teams with losing records, L.A. was 15 games over 500, ranking 10th. Against left-handers, the Phillies had a league average 500 winning percentage. Against right-handers, the Dodgers were fourth, winning 22 more games than they lost. 22 also happens to be Clayton Kershaw's uniform number. And his other numbers for 2016 and early 2017 are all elite, save for his days on the DL over the past three years, which number 85. Over 21 starts in 2016, Kershaw had 16 PQS dominant outings and one PQS disaster. In 2017, four of his five starts have been PQS dominant. Kershaw's worst whip in the past six seasons was 102 in 2012. That was also the one year of those six in which his expected ERA exceeded 295. For the past three campaigns, Kershaw's dominance rate has shown double-digit strikeouts per nine innings pitched. His control rate has averaged 1.67 walks per nine innings pitched, and he's produced base performance values, or BPVs, averaging 192. That's more than twice as good as the 2016 National League average of 83. And that's why Clayton Kershaw is this weekend's marquee matchup. Our Sunday surprise has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 086, heading into Toronto to face the Blue Jays' right-hander Marco Estrada. Estrada has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 003. The surprise is that Estrada's opponent is the Tampa Bay Rays' ace, right-hander Chris Archer. The Toronto Blue Jays were 2016 American League wildcard game winners with a regular season record of 89 wins and 73 losses, 16 games over 500. The 2016 Tampa Bay Rays finished 26 games below 500, winning 68 and losing 94. At home, the Jays were 9 games over 500. On the road, the Rays were 17 games under 500, ranking next to last in the American League. 
versus right-handed pitchers, Toronto was 12 games over 500, ranking fifth in the American League. Against right-handed pitchers, Tampa was 18 games under 500, again ranking next to last in the American League. Against teams with winning records, Tampa Bay was 27 games under 500, yet again ranking next to last in the American League. Versus teams with losing records, Toronto was three games over 500. Things are off to a different start this season as the Jays have the worst record in Major League Baseball after 20 games and the Rays are only one game under 500. But you can still see why Chris Archer has an uphill battle in Toronto. Archer pitched well in 23 innings against the Blue Jays over four 2016 starts, posting an expected ERA of 352 and a whip of 116. He put up a perfect bell curve of one PQS disaster start, two PQS decent starts, and one PQS dominant start. On April 8, 2017, versus the Blue Jays in Tampa, Archer earned a PQS dominant four. That was his second start of the season, and it followed another PQS dominant four home outing against the Yankees. Since then, Archer has three PQS decent starts, with two on the road. Over the past three years, Archer has averaged 203 innings pitched, 219 strikeouts, an expected ERA of 3.43, a whip of 1.22, and a BPV of 118. Our Sunday surprise is Chris Archer, who has the goods to make his risk-reward matchup rating of minus 086 more reward than risk. Around the majors for the rest of the weekend, there are no other strongly recommended start recommendations other than the two we've mentioned, Ty Block and marquee matchup man Clayton Kershaw. But there are several risk-reward matchup ratings in the positive range, such as Marco Estrada's 003 mentioned previously. They are Detroit's Michael Fulmer, Houston's Joe Musgrove and Dallas Keuchel, Kansas City's two Jasons, Hamill and Vargas, Texas's Hugh Darvish, Miami's Dan Straley, and Washington's Steven Strasburg. Here's hoping most of your risks are rewarding this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about some April news that caught my eye. This is the last Master Notes of the opening month, and it's a time to look back with mixed fondness on some of the quirks that have popped up through 630-odd Major League games before we head on to the warm months. First, what the heck is going on with our established closers? On Thursday afternoon of this week, Roberto Osuna of Toronto came into the game against St. Louis in the ninth inning to protect a two-run lead. He gave up a double, then he got two outs, but then wham! And that's not a reference to careless whispers. Randall Grichuk homered to tie the game, and it was another blown save for Roberto Osuna. Now this kind of thing happens from time to time, but for Osuna it's becoming the rule rather than the exception. He has appeared in five games this year and has exactly zero clean, hit-free, run-free innings. He's given up nine hits and five earned runs in those five outings, and he has just one save with his three blown saves. You know, three blown saves doesn't even lead baseball by himself. Osuna is tied with former closer Sam Dyson of Texas. And behind them, there's a parade forming of closers, former closers, and potential closers at two blown saves apiece. How about Jim Johnson in Atlanta, Frankie K. Rod Rodriguez in Detroit, Michael Givens in Baltimore, potential Osuna replacement Joe Biagini of Toronto, Former Wade Davis backup Koji Uehara of the Cubs, now third in the pecking order, behind Davis and Hector Rondon. And now you see him, now you don't, Edubre Ramos of Philadelphia. 
Meanwhile, some other back-end bullpen artists have inauspicious first months as well. Xavier Cedeno of Tampa has three blown saves, and Dan Altavilla and Tyler Clippard have two each, with no saves to at least offset the damage they've done. It might be that most of these pitchers' managers will play it patient with this cavalcade of save-blowing. Some teams have had effective closing. Greg Holland of Colorado is 9-for-9, Ken Giles of Houston and Tony Watson are 7-for-7, and there's a bunch at 5-for-5, including Aroldis Chapman of the Yankees, Kenley Jansen of the Dodgers, and Wade Davis. It's also interesting to me that a couple of closers who weren't given any chance to keep the gig are doing just fine, thank you. Brandon Kinsler is 5-for-5 in Minnesota. Brandon Moore is 4-for-4 in San Diego. And Razel Iglesias, as we talked about earlier in the National League report, is 3-for-3 in save opportunities. There's not going to be a ton of wins in any of these locations, it looks like, so temper your expectations. But keep in mind, the blown save count is up. Last season, there was about 12% of total games that were blown saves, keeping in mind that one game can have multiple blown saves, especially for the Blue Jays, and this year so far that number is more like 16%. Now quick, without looking, how many batters this year have OPS over 1,200, and how many starting pitchers have ERAs under 1? I'll give you the answer a little later. Think about it. One of the issues that spotty relieving creates is more tough losses for otherwise successful starters. I say this as the proud owner of Marco Estrada, who has been the beneficiaries of the Blue Jays' bullpen generosity. Estrada has four quality starts in five outings, and no wins. Similarly, Madison Bumgarner of the Giants is four for four in quality starts, with no wins, and even worse luck on the dirt bike track. Other victims of bad bullpen work and or anemic offense include Jared Eikhoff of Philadelphia, Ian Kennedy of the Royals, Jacob deGrom of the Mets, Jared Weaver of the Angels, Mike Faltinevich of Atlanta, Hisashi Iwakuma of Seattle, Jaime Garcia of Atlanta, and John Lester of the Cubs, all of whom have two or more quality starts and still no wins to show for it. On the flip side, there have been some lucky pitchers. No quality starts, but at least one win. Zach Davies of Milwaukee, Taiwan Walker of Arizona, and Tyler Anderson have two wins each, and singletons go to Alex Cobb of Tampa Bay, Rich Hill of the Dodgers, Brian Johnson of Boston, Zach Lee of San Diego, Kenta Maeda of the Dodgers, Tommy Malone of Milwaukee, who's been finding some bullpen work, Joe Musgrove of Houston, Erasmo Ramirez of Tampa, Adam Wainwright of St. Louis, and Zach Wheeler of the Mets. A lot of pundits predicted Eric Thames would not be able to maintain the power pace he set in his time in the Korean baseball organization. I'm starting to think they might be wrong. Thames has been a big story so far this year, of course. 11 home runs, 19 RBIs, and a nice 1393 OPS. Since his previous high watermark in the majors was about a league average 769 OPS, and that was six years ago, I suppose pundits could be forgiven to assume that Eric Thames was not going to be the next coming of Henry Aaron in Milwaukee. But this hot start has all the earmarks of more than, well, just a hot start. There looks like there's more to it. Last week on Baseball HQ Radio, guest Mike Podhorzer and I discussed Thames and the possibility that he might have discovered something new and valuable in his game while toiling for the NC Dinos in Changwon, Korea, where he was the league's first ever 40-40 guy, the 2015 MVP, and it turns out something of a cultural icon. Some reports around the web have cited Thomas as having really absorbed the baseball culture of Korea. 
In particular, the importance of having fun with the game and being a good team player, which for him meant cutting down on the whiffs and taking some more of those walks. This is important because in his previous MLB stint, those numbers were somewhere around 30% strikeouts and about 5% walks. In Korea, he turned that around, just 18% strikeouts and 14% walks. And this year, so far in Milwaukee, well, there's 21% strikeouts, it's a bit higher than Korea, but a lot lower than his previous Major League experience, and understandable considering the relative talent of pitching in Major League Baseball versus the Korean organization. Thames also has a whopping 18% walk rate. He's also greatly improved his discipline as far as which pitches he's swinging at. He's hacking at far fewer out-of-zone offerings and making contact with way more in the zone. Thames is out of action after leaving a game on Wednesday with what was called tightness in his left hamstring. We hope that all goes well, and of course, when Eric Thames comes back, don't be surprised if he picks up where he left off. Finally, our trivia answers. Just four hitters are over 1,200 OPS, and they're all in the National League. We mentioned Eric Thames at 1,393, but also add in Bryce Harper at 1,373, Freddie Freeman at 1,291, and Ryan Zimmerman at 1,239. Mike Trout, in case you're keeping score at home, leads the American League at 10.83. Meanwhile, there's just two starting pitchers under one ERAs through Wednesday, and this time both in the American League. Irvin Santana of the Twins was at 0.77, and Chris Sale of the Red Sox was at 0.91. Although Sale did give up two Ernies in eight innings on Thursday and saw his ERA shoot up to 119. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition, Todd Zola, a very fine fantasy baseball researcher and writer, and of course a longtime friend of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and please feel free to send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep that podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next Friday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.